0: And thanks for tuning in to the Savvy Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Graham Hamilton. He's a licensed insolvency trustee with the firm Spurgell. What they focus on is helping people pay for their past debts so that those people can focus on building a stronger financial future. During this episode, Graham will be talking about his experience. And his path. He'll also be breaking down those seemingly difficult concepts in finance. And we will be discussing bankruptcy, insolvency, what are the differences, and what are the steps that people and companies should take when they're faced with those challenges. You'll learn a lot about finance and a lot about life in this episode, so prepare yourself. Graham will be sharing some tips and tricks on how to avoid challenging situations, how to prepare yourself, and what are the trends that he sees for 2021. And with that, let's jump right into the episode. Welcome to the show. Super excited to have you with us. Why Thanks, don't you introduce yourself and tell us more about yourself?
1: So I am a licensed insolvency trustee with the firm Spurgel. And Spurgel is an insolvency firm that's been around for the last 30 years that works with businesses, companies, or so businesses, individuals, and households that are facing debt challenges. And I recently came over from spur, uh, to Spurgill from a firm where I was working on the corporate side of the practice strictly for the past nine years. And I just moved over to work over on the personal side of the industry over the summer. And I listened to Wilson's episode, which I thought was really, really well done. So shout out to Wilson. And I thought that I could shed some light kind of on what the other half of trustees do, because a lot of us are either doing personal stuff with individuals and households, or they stick to the the corporate side of stuff and are just working with companies. So I've got a, a little bit of a unique perspective having done both. And seeing as it's financial literacy month in November, I thought it would be good to, to kind of come on and share some of what I'm seeing uh, over the last little while.
0: I love this. Okay, so let's just jump right in. First of all, how did you get involved in the industry? What was the interest in it? Were you always thinking, as I grow up, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life? How did you end up here?
1: Absolutely not. So I was a bit of a wandering soul. So I did my undergrad in Montreal, and I just did a bachelor's degree. I was not really sure what I wanted to do. So I did a lot of traveling and worked different jobs in my 20s. And I didn't have that clear career path view that a lot of people do when they finish their undergrad. So I ended up going back to school to get a career in education. And at that time, I got hired at an accounting firm, Crow Soberman, in the insolvency and restructuring group. They were looking for someone to come in and uh, work on some reporting and administrative aspects to the files. And I got you know exposed to kind of the wider world of insolvency. And Crow was a really great environment to learn in because there was always this new group of CA students coming in each year. so. For myself it didn 't have a lot of background in the business world. It was a really good learning environment. I got exposed to all the different practices you know audit and tax and and all these different functions of, of business. So when I started doing some of this insolvency work, I was interacting with you know amazing lawyers and going to court and you know working on this these really complex problem solving issues. And I, I saw that the work was intellectual and social, because you were working with all these different parties all the time. You weren't just sitting at a cubicle. So it took a lot of boxes for me. And, you know, once I did probably a couple of years of, of working, I realized that this was the career that I wanted to do. So it was by fate. It's a very niche profession where most people won't find it unless they're already kind of in finance or a chartered accountant, because it's mostly uh, CA firms that have these kind of niche practices, or there's just a strictly insolvency firm like Spurgill, where they just work in that area. It's experience, and then you have to go into this kind of program to get the designation, which is, I think we should back up a little bit as well, just so people know what a licensed insolvency trustee is. I was going
0: to just ask, you know, a lot of people don't know what insolvency means and, yeah. uh, and that's not necessarily that you know it's not a common word but what exactly do you do
1: the designation is a licensed insolvency trustee it used to be called you know a bankruptcy trustee we can just call it trustee for the interview so it's a, a professional designation that we get from uh, the government where we're allowed to work with businesses and individuals to allow them to access two specific pieces of federal legislation. One is the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, and the other is the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act, which is called the CCAA. And for everyone reading what's going on right now, all the companies that are restructuring or closing are doing it through the CCAA. So Le Chateau was closing, that's a CCAA filing. Mountain Equipment Co-op is restructuring and selling that's through the CCAA. So all those retail and cannabis files that you read about, that involves a licensed insolvency trustee doing a filing through the CCAA. I work more with the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. So it's kind of two broad themes. One is like settling and restructuring. And then the other is either a bankruptcy where it's uh, you're closing down a firm or you're selling assets, kind of end of business life cycle. So We have a bit of a monopoly on both, so it it can only be done with the trustee. And as I said, most of us are also holding some other kind of a designation like an MBA or a CA. I am not, Uh, I just have the the trustee designation.
0: Got it. Okay. So then when do people find you? I mean, you said that you worked on the corporate side. Now you're on a personal Mm -hmm. side. Are you appointed to a person or a company or do you find them?
1: So they will find us. For people that I'm working with now, it's, it's primarily a voluntary process where they will seek us out. We have, in the last five to seven years, started advertising more. It's not uncommon for someone to get on a subway car and see a bunch of advertising for trustee firms. It's not uncommon to see us on CP24 or you know popping up on your internet browsers as ads, so we are out there, we are advertising. But most people will find us just by googling you know debt relief Toronto, or they'll know the company that they're looking for. And once they you know get in touch with the trustee going forward, if they want to use the services, it's voluntary. It's like not unlike an accountant or a lawyer, where you find someone that's a good fit. There's a personality fit, you feel like they're they're giving you good advice. And then when you're ready to make a decision, you, you move forward with them.
0: Got it. So in that at yeah. which point do companies and people find you? Are they finding you before they need to go through the process or while they're in a bad position? How does it work?
1: And I'll just talk about for the individuals. So what we're finding is again it's it's tough to talk about a pre covid and and during this normal time usually when someone's calling us they are in a position where they're already being contacted by their creditors or by collection agencies saying you owe this money you have to contact us and come up with some kind of a repayment plan so it's usually within that that pre end where they're they're looking for their options they're googling debt relief and and debt settlement and things like that where they get us so you know there is That you know, creditor pressure that will lead them to find us. Uh, There are a lot of people also that are kind of getting an early start and know that that is down the road. So they already know that they're in a bit of a bad position as far as carrying too much debt, and they're they're trying to be proactive and you know looking through what their options are, which is what a lot of my day is spent on is is working with people that are seeing that they're at this very, you know, unsustainable situation, and they're going to have to do something about it before, you know, the creditors, you know, sue them and get judgments and then take action. So a lot of the people that I'm working with are at that, you know, I'm not quite on the edge, but I'm getting there. And, you know, we go through kind of a quick, you know, what's the facts of your situation. So most of my day is is speaking to people for the first time, probably in half hour intervals of uh, just getting the facts of their situation, going through what their debt load is. You know, Are they working? Who do they owe money to? How bad is it? And then seeing what these options are for them for some of the problem solving. It may not involve us. It may involve instead going to see a mortgage broker. It may involve going to their banker or you know, maybe talking to somebody like their parents about getting some kind of a loan. So at the end of the day, a lot a lot of my interactions aren't with end users, but it's important that, you know, they know what their options are for dealing with that, especially if it's getting bad.
0: So I guess do you recommend them, for example, let's let's take a practical example. A lot of people yeah. who had a deferral on their mortgage over the past eight to twelve months, whatever mm-hmm. they were able to negotiate with the bank you know, yeah. with the prices of real estate maybe are not heating up right now, especially downtown Toronto, right? Let's say an yeah. apartment building, you got an apartment a couple of years ago, you paid a million dollars. Now it's not worth it. But what you're faced with, you know, you put maybe minimal down payment. Now your mortgage is actually more than the value of your home. What do you do?
1: It's scary kind of what's happening right now with that Airbnb rent rate, downtown condo. We are getting calls from people. There's also inventory coming out as well, right? There's going to be a lot of condos hitting the market. If you are in a place where your condo is now cash flow negative on a monthly basis, you know, unfortunately, you may have to try to sell it and minimize your losses. That's that's probably going to be, unless you can hold it, maintain the carrying costs, maybe try to find, you know, someone to live in it. You may not get the rent rate you want, but you might be able to see it through when hopefully, you know, the immigration levels and kind of free flow of people comes back. If you can't, you're unfortunately going to have to sell it. And if you sell it at a loss where you can't cover the mortgage, you're going to have to likely expose yourself to a claim from the bank or the lender. And if you can't, you know, pay that judgment, you may have to to come see us and say, you know, we have to look at maybe a debt settlement. It's always better to to try to sell it because some people will see us and then if we are acting as the bankruptcy trustee their assets best with us. So we we would always sell it on MLS, but it's just always easier for, you know, a property owner to try to at least sell it on their own right, without an insolvency proceeding.
0: So that's the interesting part where kind of, you know, people understand where you step in. So if they try to liquidate all of the assets and deal with their issues themselves and then at the end of it they're still not able to figure it out. That's when they come to you and say, what do I do? Because I still have yeah. $200, 300 $400, 1000000 million owed to a certain lender, whether it's the mm-hmm. bank, whether it's a firm. And what do I do? You go mm-hmm. through their assets, you realize there's nothing else to liquidate. And then you go through the process, basically declaring bankruptcy, Right.
1: Right. So there's, there's two tools that we have. One is bankruptcy. The other is a settlement. So it's called the proposal. And those are the two kind of legislative tools that we work with that we're always, we're always balancing which one's better for the person to choose. In this scenario that you just went over, if they've already tried to liquidate all their assets, they're done. There's no assets left. All that's left with is debt then that's, that's easier for us to deal with because we're just looking at how to settle these debts. It's a bit harder when there's live assets on the table. So if they still are owning uh, their real estate or if there's investments or cash, it, it can come into play. Most of the people that I'm working with here have minimal assets. So there's not a lot of equity in the home. There's no you know large investments or, or cash to call on. So when we're working with those people that have, no, I'd say Maria, the average person is between thirty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of debt. That's kind of our average range that we're working with. So we go through, you know, who it is, who's the majority creditors, and then we we look at whether they're going to try to offer a settlement. So it's a global settlement. That's what a consumer proposal is, where it's better than a bankruptcy. So they may be able to offer. A 25 to 35% recovery to their creditors through a settlement instead of having to go bankrupt, where they often won't be getting anything back if you're a creditor. So that's that's the the two things that we we offer to them.
0: First of all, yeah. um if you go obviously bankruptcy is harsher yeah. than insolvency. You no the no, proposal. The proposal, correct. Yeah. So yeah. You want to go with a proposal if you can because you want to settle your debt at pennies on the dollar, pull right. it even with a lender. Now, yeah. does it negatively affect your personal credit score or your history?
1: We get so many calls about that. Everyone conflates debt and their credit score. So when you do a consumer proposal, it's usually structured over 60 months. You know, you've got a hundred grand of debt, you're gonna offer. to pay it back structured at 500 bucks a month. So that's kind of like the deal that we'll negotiate for you. It has to be accepted by the majority of your creditors for it to be binding. But when someone is in that kind of a process, the second they finish their proposal payments, it will stay on their credit history that they've done a proposal for three years later. So you can pay off the 60 months quicker if you come into money, but we'll have that kind of set kind of deal that we'll, we'll put in place for you. To, and, and if you can pay it quicker, the three-year countdown on your credit history will, will come off quicker. When so then what's the bankers- implication
0: of having it on your report? Do creditors it, look at it saying, I'm not going to lend you? Is your credit score going down? Not with necessarily.
1: That as well? Not necessarily. So when you, when you run your credit report, there's two pieces of information, right? Your credit score and your credit history. So when you do a proposal, your credit score is still going to be a function of you as a consumer because it goes up and down. You know, you can be in a proposal covering your debt settlement payments, but, you know, you stop paying your Rogers cell phone bill. That's going to impact your credit score anyways. Right. So the proposal will stay on your credit history for three years from when you finish. If you do decide to file bankruptcy, it's much harsher. So it will stay on your credit history for seven years. So that's why we always try to move people towards the proposal. In my practice, it's probably eight out of 10 people will end up doing the proposal because we always look at both scenarios, which one's better. I mean, for the creditors, the proposal is always better because they're getting money back, right? There's some kind of a recovery. So the creditors can say, okay, you know we'll we'll get back 30 cent dollars at least in bankruptcy scenarios there's usually nothing so it's it's usually a win win the other thing too is that bankruptcy you know without getting too much into the technical part of it it can sometimes not be so straightforward so a proposal settlement is really easy because once we get some kind of an offer You just have to make that payment every month. You get that fresh start almost right away. And then you just have to make that minimum payment every month to us.
0: So then in terms of proposal, so if you're a consumer Mm -hmm. who've dealt with, you know, all of your debt as much as you can, and then you probably Mm -hmm. still, let's say, have $100,000 left and you don't know how you're going to figure it out. That's when you come to you. Now, if you are dealing with a bank, could you negotiate your own consumer proposal with them or you are required to be in the picture.
1: So you can't do a binding consumer proposal without a trustee. For you to get protection under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act or the CCAA if you're a big company, it has to involve a trustee. The first thing that we say to people when I'm speaking to them for the first time is have you tried to settle with your creditors first? So that's always the first thing that I would suggest somebody does is is speak to them Engage with them, see if you can, you know, come up with something where it gets tricky is how many do you have? So, you know, most people that we're working with have at least, you know, three, four, five different creditor or credit products that can make, you know, settling with them all difficult because if one doesn't go along, it can maybe, you know, disrupt your whole plan, right? So, if you've got you know, just one bank that you work with and all your debts with one bank, it's going to be a lot easier for you to to try to settle with them directly. Let's talk about last year. About 140,000 Canadians, just shy, did either a personal proposal or bankruptcy. The average debt was about 50 grand. Do you know
0: where this debt is coming from? Is it the consumer credit card debt or is it?
1: it, Yeah, Most, most of it's like what we just call like classic consumer debt. Right. So some people, you know, will have tax problems or there may be some student loan stuff, but generally it's going to be, you know, credit cards, lines of credit, the kind of traditional consumer debt products.
0: Got it. So then the amount that they come to you is, you said, starting at Thirty k, right? Usually, yeah, usually that.
1: around. Yeah, I mean, the average person that accessed it owed fifty, but we're seeing you know thirty to one hundred and twenty is kind of that range of people that we're working with.
0: And they obviously tried to negotiate with their creditor and clearly emptied out all of the options. There's nothing else creditors willing to do.
1: Yeah, and yeah. that's when yeah. you step in. That's kind of when we're there. It's like it's like steps of triage, right? So, so we then make when do you do sure.
0: bankruptcy? Like, because I assume you're always forced into bankruptcy. You're always doing the consumer proposal first. And then if that doesn't work, I assume you go into bankruptcy. Is that right?
1: When we do the consumer proposal, we usually try to get people to try that first. They don't have to choose that option. Some may just want to go straight for the bankruptcy. If you do a proposal and we're not able to come up with a settlement that's acceptable. There's no automatic consequence of your like bankrupt automatically. but that's the next step when people realize that they can't come up with a settlement with the creditors is that they are forced to then volunteer themselves into bankruptcy.
0: And what's the usual amount for the bankruptcy that you see people claiming? Is it the same?
1: Same. Yeah. I think the proposal settlement is what we like to have people do because first of all, again, you know as a trustee, I'm working not only for the people that are having debt challenges, I'm also working for the creditors. So I'm in the middle. I'm like the referee because I want the creditors to get the most out of the process as well. Even though I'm, I'm advocating and working for the person that's facing the debt challenge, I'm also cognizant of what the creditors are looking for as well out of this process. We do play a bit of a balancing act because we we are court officers. We are tasked with kind of administering the law. So it's not like we're automatically on on the side of the people that are, are accessing our services. Bankruptcy is a process that is very taboo. People freak out when they hear the word. But you know the the amount of people that do do it every year like there's a natural normal amount of people that file every year. unfortunately, you know if we can't come up with a settlement that works for you with your creditors, it's kind of all that's left as far as us going through your options right? so do you so, see a
0: lot of people who are let's say repeat offenders where you know they'll claim bankruptcy for example this year? Yeah. And then they'll still have the credit card and they'll still have access to some kind of resources. Do you see a lot of people who wreck up, you know, thousands of dollars of debt again and then go through the bankruptcy or how many times can you claim bankruptcy? How often?
1: So for the proposal, the debt settlement, there's no limit written in the legislation. So you could hypothetically do a proposal every five years if you were so reckless and you were able to get those, those credits again.
0: Can you do for it every bankrupt- year?
1: The proposal lasts for five years. There's no limit in the legislation. There is for bankruptcy and there's certain rules. So when someone falls bankruptcy the first time, they are in bankruptcy. So they have like the legal status of being a bankrupt for nine months. And during that nine month period, you're not allowed to have credit. You're not allowed to obtain credit. And if for some reason you come into assets, you lose the ability to deal with them. So your trustee, they kind of pass through you. And then I take them and I have to use it to repay your creditors. So this doesn't happen often, but it happened a little while ago where I was working with someone that I did have to file bankruptcy. They owed about $50,000 a debt and they ended up inheriting money from a relative. They inherited about 90000 bucks. So I ended up having to take that money, paid out 100% to the creditors of their debt, and then that person got the surplus back. And they got the 40000 extra. So that's what happens when you're kind of in the bankruptcy scenario. But um, it's only during you, those
0: nine months, right? So yeah, exactly. if, you, if exactly. they would have inherited it at the 10-month like mark, later, they could have carried it all for themselves.
1: Potentially. Yeah, that could, have, that could have been a very likely period uh, outcome. If you go bankrupt a second time, you're in, you're in bankruptcy for two years. I should say that the first time and the second time don't involve court. So there is, you know, a legal system behind this that there's the commercial list and then there's bankruptcy court. So it can involve judges and lawyers. But if you go bankrupt the first or second time, it does not have to involve court. The third time you go bankrupt, you have to go talk to a bankruptcy judge because they're going to have questions about what happened. Because the whole point, Whether it's your um, tax
0: planning strategy or if you're actually yeah, that bad with money. Or
1: Got it. How honest are you? I think the system in Canada is based on some principles about forgiveness and you getting a fresh start. You know, unfortunate things happen to good people, right? Especially during this year, job loss, relationship breakdown, healthcare issues. These can all be reasons why you have debt problems, right? They're, they're often, you know, a scar or a scab of some other kind of life event. Right, and it's not just that you were irresponsible. Uh, most of the people we work with have a pretty sad story as to why they are where they are. And what happens when you go to bankruptcy court is that they will lay additional terms for you to get out of bankruptcy. So a lot of the times, it could be, you know, a time punishment. It could be, you know, you have to pay certain money. We've seen a lot when you go to bankruptcy court. There's, there's some people that are gaming the system for sure.
0: Got it. So then, with consumer proposal, you are allowed to have credit. You are allowed to borrow again. Is that right? If
1: you have a credit card with nothing owing on it, you could keep it. A lot of people will go out and get a secured credit card while they're in a proposal because, you know, they'll want to be able to purchase things that you need a credit card for. So they'll have to go out and get like a cash down one until they're kind of able to to get an unsecured credit card but they're and allowed
0: then, to have credit. What's, I guess, the timeline where you see bankers and other lenders to feel comfortable lending to that person again? So, for example, you had to get rid of your house. You had to pay down you know, the remainder on the mortgage, hundred grand. You went with a mm-hmm. consumer proposal. You paid them $0.30 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Then when would they be comfortable, in your opinion, to lend you again if you want to buy another home?
1: So a lot of the times if someone is going through an insolvency proceeding or it's just finished one, the bank will look for a co-signer. So that's just, you know, a pretty common thing that they will, will say unless you've had, you know, some incredible change in your income, you know, then the lender may be more comfortable based on on your income level. But often, you know, they'll, they'll want to see a co especially with a home purchase. If you're trying to get credit, Uh, Let's not forget banks are in the business of lending, right? That's how they do for a living. And if you are done your proposal, uh, you do get documentation that says you're done.
0: Totally makes sense. Okay, so I think we've uh, we've got educated on the bankruptcy and the consumer proposals. That makes sense. Now, let's talk about this year, COVID, and what are people doing? What are you seeing the market over the past eight, nine months? And what do you expect?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I came over to Spurgel in June. So I did, you know, the first three months back at my old firm, Crow Silverman. So I was still kind of working with some some corporate work. And then the insolvency levels are down right now for individuals. Basically, since lockdown started in March, the average filings were down between 30 and 40%. So when we end this year, compared to last year where there was about 140,000, it'll be 30% down around there. And Usually, why do you think that
0: is? Because unemployment th- seems to be rising. Is that right. because of the stimulus checks?
1: Well, yeah. So it's a few things. One is you probably didn't get worse off with your debt unless you were like boredom buying because there was nothing for us to do, right? So if you were at a certain level, you probably didn't make it worse. The 2,000 bucks a month, probably helped some people as well. The interest vacation also helped as well. And the other thing is that the creditors were on lockdown as well. So they weren't pursuing people. There's this whole function of you know collection calls and small claims court and people getting judgments and people garnishing wages. That happens in normal time when you owe somebody money, right? It's not like someone's gonna sit back and not try to collect debt. That happened during the lockdown. So all these people were kind of frozen. Like they, they were holding this debt level of say 50 grand, if we're gonna you know call that our average user, and it was like a standstill. So they didn't have to make a move because the creditors weren't forcing them to. They were getting their 2000 bucks from Justin, and you couldn't kind of make things worse, right? So we still got calls from people that, probably will have to use our services. There's just no pressure. There's no push. So the calls didn't stop, but the filing's there. The, the amount of people that that probably will need to do something will start, we think, next year. The articles are coming out now. And I think what people will have to remember is that when you look at 2020 and 21 in the average, it'll probably be closer to last year's number. There's just going to be this huge imbalance, right? With a low insolvency level in 2020. And then this huge jump, which we think is going to happen in 2021. You know, I think things help with the programs now that there's some finality about knowing it's going to run until the spring next year. I think when they weren't sure if they were going to do a serb check for August or September, like I could tell people were, were calling and they were like, I really hope I get another month, you know, because it was people were really relying on that. And since Freeland came in and they've transitioned it now to the CRB, even though it's not as generous as like the flat two thousand bucks a month, no questions asked. I think at least people can do some kind of planning, which I think was harder during the summer because they really didn't know. Like it was, it was, they were waiting till like the fifteenth of the next month before they knew that they could at least count on that coming in. So the stress levels have gone down a bit. We're about to get into what feels like something with the second lockdown or something. So, you know, hopefully people, you know, haven't been too much more in debt with their, with their summer spending. It does so then like when work.
0: do you anticipate all the things to come crashing down in a sense? Is it, you know, January 1st, 2021? Are we expecting a switch to last for the first quarter? And then, you know, let's say April.
1: Yeah, I think the numbers are starting to come up a bit. I think you're probably looking at the winter and spring next year for the majority of filings coming. I think there's a tax season that's going to come up where the CERB payments are going to come up. So I think probably the first six months. But having said that, everyone in my industry thought it was going to be this summer. And then that didn't happen. And then everyone was like, this fall, that didn't happen either. So we're now saying 2021. And we're just starting to see a slow curve up with the monthly filings that there's a tick. So we've just seen September. So September has gone up, we don't know, October, I know, I think at our firm, we did get busier, but we're still far off from that normal natural level of filings that happens every year.
0: Got it. So, I guess in, in terms of people preparing for that surge, right? Like, if you were sitting on a lot of debt right now in your bank account and you realize that maybe you're that person who over leveraged themselves, you had a lot mm-hmm. of either spending, uh, maybe you lost your job, you're not able to cash flow, and then obviously with Airbnb out in a lot of places you know, maybe you had a few rental apartments that you got lucky with. And now, even though the interest rates and the mortgage rates are super low, you're still not able to cash flow because there's no renters. So if you're sitting with a few assets and you realize that, you know, you don't want to put yourself in the position where you're uh, in the bloody market, where everybody's putting their stuff out, when would you recommend someone to, you know, start thinking about maybe liquidating some of the assets before the search starts?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people that we talk to refinance in the spring. So everybody that I know because the rates were so attractive. So if you've not gotten the calls out to your bankers to look and see if there's some some better rates out there, you may be late if you wait until the spring. I think, you know, if you don't want to get into an insolvency proceeding, you should, you know, look at maybe paying your high interest debt off first. And then see if you can come up with you know some kind of uh, a lower interest consolidation for your other debts. I don't know you know what if we can say for sure there's going to be you know a, a specific quarter to next year. Good luck trying to predict the Toronto housing market. Right, it's like I can't even read another article. It's like clickbait at this at this point. Right, it's got nine lives and people. have a really hard time predicting what's going to happen with it so avoid that
0: well it's crazy right now because the houses because we were in the market to just look at places and the apartment buildings and condos are going down in actual value and price but the houses they're bidding wars for the houses because everybody's trying to move out of the core and have more space
1: yeah you know i'm sure you have a lot of friends that are real estate agents like we all do right it's great times for them. I have a lot of friends that are moving outside even like the regular Bloor line, right? Like they're going now like to Guelph or the Cremor or, you know, the Prince Edward County. So I think people are thinking a little bit bigger, but I, we all wait for this correction. I think our industry's talked about it for like a decade, like ever since I've been in insolvency and, you know, houses went up so fast in value, like our industry every three years just there's all these articles about the, the housing correction happening in Canada, and it hasn't happened. Still, right? still waiting. I, it's, it's still so, waiting. So I'm like you, like me and my girlfriend are kind of trying to plan. And I think 2020 has been really rough for trying to plan. But again, I know you asked this question about you know the biggest lessons. That's that's the importance to to having these one year, three year, five year plans because if you have them, you're not as shook when something like 2020 happens, like you're able to kind of still stay somewhat, you know, in your lane and, and, and stay on that.
0: So I guess the, some tips for the people who are trying to figure out their life, how to plan for 2021, maybe some of them are looking for a new job, lost a job, maybe they're entrepreneurs and they're just trying to figure out what's going to happen with their cash flow every month. What would be some of your tips that they should implement?
1: I did it too. Is if you don't know your budget like the back of your hand, you need to start. I've worked with people that have their MBAs and are six-figure earners. They're still having to do an insolvency filing, and a lot of it is the fact that they don't know their budget. Right. So, download an app on your phone. Uh, there's a bunch out there. I use Buddy, which is the icon like a ceramic piggy bank. So you should be tracking your spending every month and know it really well and and analyze it. The amount of people that when I ask them, what's your monthly cash flow? They really have no idea, right? And you do not want to be able to troubleshoot for another potential downturn and just not know the facts of what your, your budget is. So that would be the first thing. I think cut down on, on your spending that is you know, not necessary. Discretionary. Right I'm a big like, nighttime economy guy. So you know I like music and art shows and dinner parties and all that stuff. That's the last stuff coming back, right? Like that is so far down the road of something that I'm going to be doing again. So take up cooking, you know, if you're doing too much Uber Eats, right? Like you, you've got to try to find, you know, some efficiencies and, you know, if you're going to be not sure what your your inflows are going to be for the next kind of six to nine months.
0: So then what is the best way to, I guess, create your budget. I mean, there's apps. There is. um, I had Paige Pritchard on the podcast Mm -hmm. last week, and she was talking about there is this software called You Need a Budget, Yeah, and she loves it. But how much would you recommend for people to save for the emergency fund? Because I assume the other problem is a lot of people didn't have anything saved this year, and that's why COVID was really a problem for them because there was not that cushion. So Mm -hmm. what would be the recommended amount or percentage?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, most people will say it's that six months, which, you know, if you've just lived through the last six months and you had an emergency fund, it would be a very easy six months for you. So I still think that's the conventional wisdom. Um, I like when I'm talking to people about budgets to look at percentages. So 50, 30, 20 is that kind of split of like 54 living. And then that other 20, 30 is a split between either, you know, your wants or your savings and retirement. So, you should be tweaking that final 50% of your budget and see, you know, how much you can, you know, be putting towards your debt and your emergency fund if you're paying too much of that towards your debt though. That's where you should probably call us, right? Because what we see is, you know, if you've got too many creditors and you're paying just the minimum amount on your debt, you're not gonna get ahead. So you're never gonna free up money to save for an emergency fund or for your retirement if you're just making the minimum monthly payment every month. So that's you know why knowing your budget, have that software. And then, you know, maybe talk to your partner about it too, right? Like me and my girlfriend, we go over spending, you know, maybe not every week, but you know, at the end of the month, we'll kind of be like, All right, you know, let's take a look and and see, you know, what we did. You know, we try to be pretty consistent with, you know, how much we spend on, you know, like food and and all that um, and clothing. But, you know, if you're not reviewing it and assessing it, then what's the point of just jotting down numbers every month, right? Like you gotta, you gotta critique it as well.
0: Totally, totally makes sense. I like the, I like the idea of, you know, doing it every month, especially if you have a partner and just sitting down and having the wholesome idea of what's in the bank and what's coming out. Now, in terms of, Entrepreneurs. So, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there, solopreneurs, a lot of people who are, you know, maybe out of their job and now they're trying to start either an e commerce store or their own thing, consulting, professional services, whatever that might be. Now, how should they manage their life? Because they have their personal, obviously, savings and their expenses, but then they also have their business. Are there any tips there for entrepreneurs how to manage? And then also, if you have to liquidate or go bankrupt with your business, how does it affect you personally? Sure,
1: that's a really good question. So, you know, one of the things when I was at Crow, the size of the companies that we were working with, they were all mostly family owned. So you'd be interacting with the family owner. And if the restructuring wasn't going to be successful, they were exposed to certain director liabilities. So owners of corps usually the debts involve either employees that have not been paid. So the director can be personally liable for them. And then the other ones are uh, unpaid debts to the CRA. So if you owe HST, if you owe source deductions and payroll taxes, the CRA can look to the owner of the business and say, you know, you owe us that on a personal level. So I do work with people that will file a personal proposal, but include debts where they are uh, liable as a director for the corporation because there is a personal attachment. So they will have those debts plus their credit cards. And now we're dealing with all of it in one filing. So there is an ability for business owners to also you know, do a personal insolvency filing if they don't have assets left. Now um, that's I an think, interesting
0: part, hold on a second. Yeah. If you're a director of a company, are you automatically liable for the debts or is it only if you personally sign for those debts in the company? Those
1: as well, yeah. So the ones by law that you'll be liable for as a director is the CRA ones and employee ones. So that is just written by legislation. And then if you personally guaranteed something to the bank and there's a corporate filing done, there's a corporate you know, restructuring proceeding, the bank suffers a shortfall and you personally guaranteed it, the bank's gonna go, buddy, like you you've now gotta pay, you're liable for our shortfall. And either and if you can't make good on it, then you may have to look at a personal insolvency proceeding.
0: Now, is there a consumer proposal in that case? Because I assume with a the company there's yeah. only bankruptcy, right? There's no you don't no negotiate businesses. with a bank.
1: No, businesses can do proposals. So that okay. was most, that's most of my work. So it's not a consumer proposal. It's called a Division I proposal. And actually, that CCAA filing that we, we talked about, that legislation, when I was kind of learning this industry, it was kind of explained to me like that's just a really, really, really big proposal involving you know, millions and millions of dollars of assets and different stakeholders. But at the end of the day, it's still you know, some kind of a restructuring plan. And most of the work that I was doing with businesses was a proposal. Like that was the kind of formal style of proceeding. And when you're doing it for a business, it's different because you've got all these different stakeholders, right? So you've got landlords, you've got employees, you've got suppliers that want this company to stay in business. So what they will do is they'll often say, look, you know, we'll take some kind of a settlement on our debt with this company with the view of, you know, we want to do business with you for the next 10 years, right? So we'll, we're willing to kind of take a bit of a haircut right now on this debt with the view of, you know, we, we want you to continue and be, you know, contributing to the Canadian economy, employing people. And the CRA often has the same view too, right? They, they don't want to have companies shut down because a business owner owes HST. Like the, everyone's preference is to work to kind of find a solution.
0: And so in that case, do they come to you as well? Like when they realize there's trouble in the business, do they come to you or do they try to negotiate that with their lenders first? Like what's the process?
1: Probably they will be, it depends, you know, how big their debts are with their lenders, but often what happens and and Wilson got into this, the process where if you default on a loan or you miss a covenant, you'll go to SBL, which is the small business loan department. And then you're kind of Like in the principal's office, if you're a business, so you are now dealing with this loan officer, often they'll engage counsel and they will say, you know, this is our security. You know, what's our position? Are we, are we still in a good position here? And that's where the company will then often bring in an outside advisor. So often an accountant, maybe a trustee, often their own counsel. And then they will start working with the bank and their own counsel to say, you know, these are the solutions that we foresee. Hopefully it doesn't involve a formal insolvency proceeding. And you can come up with some kind of a workout plan informally with the institutional lender first. Like if you could triage the preference, that's number one, right? Is that if you can work something out with the bank without involving a trustee, we may be doing some you know, cash flow projecting and things for the bank but it won't involve a formal filing and that's you know kind of the best most preferred route for most parties
0: so in terms of getting a trustee so the process is they find you let's say go yeah. on the website yeah. find you yeah. now how yeah. do you get paid
1: so there's a few ways that we get paid when i'm working with individuals it's actually a tariff so it's it's based on the legislation so if someone offers a $30,000 settlement there's no cost that we have on top of that. We're we paid a tariff out of that thirty thousand dollars. So is the government. So the person, you know, that you know volunteers for this process doesn't have a cost on top of that. When you're working with companies, often there's some kind of a retainer that you're asking for. Just like the lawyers, you can render an invoice or, or the accountant and then they, they have
0: Makes sense. So, okay. One more question on the business side. For example, Mm -hmm. if you have obviously a business that's not doing well and you Mm -hmm. retain a trustee. Now, if the director is liable for the, for the expenses or the debts, does that pass down to their spouse just for people who are, you know, in their relationships?
1: It would depend on if they co-signed as well. So for the legislative one, so the HST, it's not gonna, there's no extension to the spouse for any director liability debt unless she also personally guaranteed it with the bank. So if she signed documents saying that, you know, I'll also, you know, pledge assets or pledge a personal guarantee, and she signed that and she's on the hook for it.
0: But if they didn't sign, because that's interesting part where you know a lot of people have a misconception that one, you have a liability with one person, the whole couple is liable. But technically, no. for example, the husband has the liability, is trying to work through the insolvency. And then yeah. the wife is making you know, good money, has the wage, uh, has some assets. The bank or the creditors can't mm-hmm. come after her.
1: No, no. And often, so the interesting thing for the personal proposals is a husband and wife can actually file together if like all the credit cards have both their names on it. So that's really common where you know, we'll have a couple that's maybe recently separated. The husband will file a proposal with me and the bank will say, okay, so we're going to settle the debt for the husband, but we now have the right to go to the wife and ask her to pay the balance of the cards. So now the wife all of a sudden has the bank saying, you owe all this money because the husband's volunteered to go on a proposal. Those joint credit cards, I see them being very complicated. So, you know, I try to avoid... So it's uh,
0: better to keep things separate. Keep it separate.
1: Get get Mr. and Mrs. their own separate cards instead of having them both on.
0: And that's a good point because just because you have two people who are married, if one goes insolvent or files Mm -hmm. bankruptcy, it doesn't necessarily automatically affect the other person or does it?
1: If she is on the card or he is on the card as a user and a guarantor, the bank can then go to that other spouse that didn't file and say pay up.
0: But if not, then no.
1: If not, then no.
0: Yeah. Interesting. What about any other type of debt, not maybe credit cards, but any other loans, mortgages, if it only has one person on it, but the people are married, could they go after the other human?
1: not if they've signed documents claiming a responsibility to repay it. Homes can get really tricky in our world because spouses have rights to the home, right? So even though one of the part, like not to be old fashioned, but say there was a female homemaker and the dad was the one that was working and paying the mortgage every month, the wife still hasn't in the home, should they separate, even though she's not been making mortgage payments. That's you know, maybe you'll have a divorce lawyer on and they can, and you can go through that with that. But, you know, so she has a right to some of that equity or assets in the home because she's contributed value to the home, even though she maybe hasn't been making mortgage payments. It's still argued that she's contributed value. But having said that, the bank can't say to her she has an obligation to pay, you know, any outstanding amount.
0: If the house is I guess, for example, let's say a scenario, you know, where the mortgage is larger than the house price and they're dealing with it right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. who can the bank go after? Both of them if they're on the title or mm-hmm. if only husband is on the title?
1: No. Yeah. If it, it's who's on title, it's whoever's on title the bank can go after. for their sh- If the house gets sold on MLS and there's a shortfall, the bank will sue both people on title for the shortfall. So, but as we talked about, there's not a lot of shortfalls on Toronto real estate right now. But we are unfortunately speaking to people that have that happening with condos. So, unfortunately, they they're not able to get back enough to repay the mortgage amounts, and there's a shortfall. And unfortunately, they have to either try and settle it with the lender, and if they can't do an informal workout, then they'll have to come to you.
0: No, totally makes sense. Okay, just to switch gears a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of what you see in the industry any trends anything coming up that people should be really paying attention to or preparing for over the next 12 months
1: i think we kind of discussed it i think you know there is going to be a huge leap in numbers probably at some point you know we can't speculate what quarter it's going to be but i think you know people should be cognizant that the big leap when you look at it over the last three years is really more attributed to not people not filing in 2020 for all those reasons that that we spoke about so i think you know from what we're hearing the canadian economy was supposed to i think shrink at seven percent this year things have gotten a bit better so it's only going to be five now they're estimating so the sky isn't falling right the unemployment numbers are a lot better than we thought they were going to be so when people hear about massive insolvency filings next year at some point it's going to happen right because the 2020 people haven't filed yet just maybe you know to not assume that the sky is falling because these are people that would have normally done it in the normal course of things if 2020 had gone the way it was so i think that would be my only advice because it's it does feel like a lot of stuff's coming out now in the media it makes people anxious, right? Especially people that are going through it, right? It's a very rough chapter for a lot of people. And I think, you know, they they should do their homework, but, you know, reach out to us as well, right?
0: Any suggestions for entrepreneurs or people who are just starting their business right now in the midst of the pandemic, they found opportunities, what's the best way?
1: Probably structure. I think, you know, figure out how you want to structure it. Um, As I said, you know, if you're going to be a sole proprietorship and things don't work out, could lose all your personal assets right but if you structure it as a corporation you're protecting your personal stuff so i think if you do want to go out and you know just from a you know structural accountant lawyer basis like figure out how you want to set it up i don't know how you build a plan without you know building in a lot of resiliency to rejection just because there's so much unforeseen right now right so it's inevitable that there's going to be some, you know, rejection or negative outcomes. If you're trying to start something right now, but, you know, luck favors the brave too, right? So, you know, I changed my work mid COVID. It was scary, but, you know, I'm really happy I did. It was, it was, a, it's a really challenging time right now to make big life decisions, like buying a home or changing careers. But, you know, it's also some would say the perfect time for big change. A great as well. opportunity. So don't be fair. Yeah, don't be shook.
0: There's you know, some don't, uh, don't great companies started during this kind of time. So yeah. I think, I think every challenge presents a fantastic opportunity. The other question is, in terms of resources, books, any kind of content that you consume that you would recommend people to consume.
1: Yeah, I mean, I unfortunately was so absorbed with the election. So I found myself consuming like every New York Times podcast to do with the election. So I'm really happy that it's gone and I can actually like listen to the lighter stuff again. I really like current events. So I feel like no matter what, like to be a good, you know, employer, employee, worker, you need to know what's going on in the world. So I like. You know, The Economist, The New York Times Daily, the NPR, Planet Money, free Economics, the Harvard Business Review stuff, Like, because it's so easy to digest when you're, you know, and it's all like 15-minute snippets, right? It's not like you have to commit all this time to that. So I really like stressing, you know, staying informed of what's going on out there. The Monk School debates at U of T had a lot of really good speakers do lectures when COVID first started. So people like David Brooks and Niall Ferguson, kind of you know, thinking big, big picture about what the world may look like in the next little while. I was always really fascinated by big, big ideas. So I would recommend that step too, because those lectures are going to kind of impact everyone, not just people that work in finance.
0: And then that was again, Monk lectures that the, you've the monk, Where do you have to find the them. Monk,
1: yeah. The, it, you can see them all on YouTube. It's the, it's the Monk school. So it's, it's the grad school for international affairs. And they often have these like incredible people that show up that are like, you know, international academics that, you know, were too smart, but they can really communicate well, these complex ideas and make it really accessible. So especially when you're, you know, talking about how the world's going to change. It's helpful to kind of break it down and make it a little easier.
0: No, it totally makes sense. Okay. Any suggestions on how to deal with a downturn? Because clearly you see all the time, the worst scenarios for people, for companies. Do you have any tips for people to deal with the adversities, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, whatever tips you have?
1: You know, coming up with a morning and a nighttime routine was really helpful in building, trying to build structure into my day. So I really got into cooking because it was a task to do every day. It was just something to. Did you
0: bake bread?
1: I did not bake bread. Oh, I did not. Bake never bread. mind. I did <laughs> not bake bread, and I screwed up half of the recipes that we tried. But it was just, you know, such a good release at the end of the day. It was relaxing. So I really like trying to build in healthy routines for end of day and beginning of day. The downturn is very challenging. I think, you know, after the first couple of weeks when, you know, the house party and the Zoom cocktails, it kind of got stale after a while and we all realized this was going to be the new normal for a while. So I think, you know, it was helpful to kind of figure out like, what's this new routine going to be like?
0: Have you figured out how to navigate the new Zoom environment? Like I know you're talking to a lot of people over the phone all the time. So it's probably not new, but do you have any tips on how to connect with people?
1: Yeah. So everything for us now actually is interesting. Our whole industry is now doing everything by Zoom. So before when you would have to meet with a trustee, it would be in person because it's, I mean, even though 140,000 Canadians used our services last year, it's still a legal process, right? Like it's not a drive through where you know it could involve the court. It could involve like some pretty serious stuff, right? So even though the majority of the filings are streamlined. So that's been really interesting. So I am now meeting people for the first time on Zoom instead of in person. And all the signups are being done through like hello sign docusign stuff. So I'm not interacting with anybody in person. So it's harder I find communicating especially with someone that's going through a hard time not in person so i think when you're looking them in the eye and you're trying to you know help them understand that this downturn what you're going through it's a chapter right it's not the whole book it's just an act or a chapter and you know you will be able to get through it move on to the to the next right like we are going to get through this downturn right we don't know how long it's going to take but i think you need to have some optimism to try to help you get through
0: it. I like how you said that. Now question, do you have to, I guess, find your own deals or clients come to you and it's pretty easy, straightforward, so to speak, sale?
1: There are other trustees out there. I think you know most of my day is talking to people for the first time. And I think if they feel like you're giving them decent, good advice, you're friendly, you connect with them interpersonally, there's a good chance that they're going to want to use you for your services. It's like any professional, right? If you, you know, go see an accountant for the first time and, you know, even though he's really smart, he doesn't return your emails, you're probably not going to end up using
0: it. So what are the tips for, I guess, in terms of other professions, right? Because all kinds of people are going to be listening to this. They're trying to figure out how do I sell myself, or my services or products in this new era of digital? And how do I connect to people to make sure that they can trust me? You're clearly in the position where people have to trust you because they're trusting them with their life. So (laughs) how do you do this?
1: First of all, you need to know what you're doing first, right? So I think if someone likes you, but they're like, I don't really know if he knows what he's talking about or he's BSing me or he doesn't really seem to be. So you need to know, you know, what you're selling, you know, you need to know your your law or your accounting that you work with. And if you have someone that isn't really sure that, that you know what you're doing, you're going to lose them, right? So that's number one is, is know your craft. And from there, I think you need to, you know, really have that some kind of energy about it, right? Like, I, even though I'm working with people that are going through a hard time, I really want to be pleasant. I want to be up I want to be encouraging and positive, and I think that that goes a long way to you know potentially having people say, "I want to work with that guy" or "I want to work with that office." So I think that helps too. And third, I try not to follow up too much, but I think you do need to to do a bit of that. You you do need to part of being an entrepreneur is is that follow up. You do have to kind of do that second or third touch because people will say, "Oh yeah." you know, I forgot about you. And then that will cue them to getting them back into potentially, you know, for me proceeding with an insolvency filing, if that's what they need to do or, you know, continuing the conversation.
0: Well, and I guess that's, that's how you name. also get referrals. Cause I mean, once people work with you and they like you, they will recommend yeah. your services. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we live and die by, you know, all my referrals. I think if you, you know, can, Get on that for whatever work you do. We definitely get a lot of feedback from people saying, you sound incredible on Google. It's free advertising, right? So if you can somehow get that going, because that's the first thing you do is you Google somebody, right? You want to see just the basic details about them and then they'll look at reviews. So we're, we have really good reviews. So that helps. And you got to sell yourself too, right? I mean, it's, it's competitive.
0: I like Especially it. in
1: our world. It's very competitive. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. And then yeah. I guess every guest that comes on the show, we ask three questions. Mm-hmm. A millennial is, a millennial should yes. be, and a millennial is not. A millennial okay. is.
1: So a millennial is someone that's gone from a paperless office to an office-less office in, I don't know, the last six years. They're open to different lifestyles. They're tolerance, they're the first adapters, and they are idealistic, I think is the best way that I would define myself because I fall in that category.
0: <laughs> I like it. Oh, what about millennials should be?
1: They should be pursuing financial independence. I wish when I was in my 20s, I definitely wish I took the time to learn more about money. I've got a 27-year-old sister who I'm pushing to do the same, which is if you've got time and you don't know how this stuff works, figure it out. Because it's such a great life skill, an emergency fund, you know, an RSP, how interest works, you know, you don't want to be calling a trustee and having them explain it to you. That's going to be the main thing because retirement is going to look so different for millennials than what it's looking like for baby boomers, right? That are going to sit back and get a pension check every month. That's not probably going to be our narrative, right? So you should be looking at what your retirement is going to look like and how you're going to get there.
0: And the faster you start looking into it, the better the outcome Absolutely. will be. So, compound yeah. interest. I was just gonna say <laughs> time value of money, but you see that that's spoken as finance folks. And what I find yeah. with a lot of my friends who are not in finance, the finance knowledge is scary, and the concepts and yeah, even nice. thinking about budgeting or spending less, saving, RSPs, TFSAs, even figuring that out is really completely. Different world, so I guess on your personal experience, what are your advices to your sister? What do you what do you recommend to her? Is she a finance person? Are you are you talking to her like
1: I should be drawing her pictures? Everybody likes infographics, right? Instead of text, I think my dad gave her the wealthy barber, and like you know, it's like all those books that people read. Um, But I think you know, there's a lot of really great products that the banks are bringing out now for Gen Z and millennials to get them you know whether it's you know investment apps and things like that so i think you know these institutions are learning it's a different language it's a different way of presenting information so i think that that's really helpful yeah there's a lot of but, stuff
0: online too like i found yeah. as i'm doing the podcast i'm finding a lot of these amazing people who figured it out put everything you need to know or the basics at least into the bite sized content that you don't really yeah. need to even think everything yeah. you can find is there on YouTube. It's easily accessible. And there's a lot of stuff that's sure. broken down into this pieces that you can just figure out.
1: Even when we're doing reports, like it's like people are like, that's a great 10-page report you did. Can you put it in a chart? Right. Because everyone just wants information in that tight package, right? That you can just put a bow on and easily look at it.
0: Absolutely. So okay, millennial is not.
1: Millennials not lazy. They are the inventors of the side hustle. So my buddy was in the restaurant industry during COVID, and he took up day trading, and he's not going back to the restaurant industry. So that is, I think, the quintessential definition of the millennial. They are the inventors of the side hustle. They're not narcissistic and self-absorbed. You know, they're the ones that are fully aware of that they're, they're not entitled.
0: I love all of those and I totally agree. Okay. So is there something that you want to talk about that I probably haven't asked? I mean, we've been here for a while. So Yeah, I think
1: I think we're good. I think, you know, the main thing that I would say to people is similar to Wilson's message with businesses, is that if you feel like things aren't good, be proactive and then get a little bit organized at the same time. So do your monthly cash flow, your monthly budget. Figure out where things are and then start calling us. Don't wait for you know things to happen, like be proactive. So I I think, as I said, most of my day is speaking to people for the first time, just going through the facts. They're not obligated to use our services, but the amount of people that say, Okay, I wish I called you six months ago. I feel so much better. And then that's it, right? And then maybe they're on their way and they don't need to be an end user of our services but at least they've gone over you know, the A to Z on, on what they're doing. Also on Spurgill, on our website, we've got an education like, learning center. So there's, like you said, there's, for whatever you're looking for, there's so much good content there that's free. And the amount of people that call me that know so much more just from that, it's, it's great, right? Because they already know, oh, I want to do a proposal. I don't want to do bankruptcy. And so you know, educate yourself definitely. Don't wait for things to happen.
0: Now is the time. Of the, you know Everybody's on lockdown. You're, you have exactly. nothing else to do but to learn. It's a great opportunity. Exactly. Okay. Well, exactly. thank you for this. Where do our Julia, listeners you. find you? Where do they connect with you? Tell us everything.
1: Sure. So okay. Spurgel is, we are three provinces, 36 locations, but I'm running the two kind of Toronto core practices. So you can't see me in person yet. Um, but you can find me online at www.spurgill.ca. And I'll give my direct line an email. Direct line is 416-497-1823. And my direct email is ghamilton, like the city or the musical, at s p e r g e l dot lca
0: what about LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok? As a proper uh, millennial,
1: <laughs> I will not be giving that out on the podcast. But I'm I'm not on TikTok, unfortunately. But I'm on the other two, so you can probably find me if you just Google that, You know, Graham Hamilton trustee. There's not a lot of us out there. I think there's only about I think on our website in that our regulator, it's about a thousand and fifty in Canada. So there's not a lot of trustees out there, and I think I'm the only Graham Hamilton. So.
0: Love it. So if they Google right. Graham Hamilton they'll probably find a lot of reviews, a lot of good reviews. But hopefully yeah. Perfect. Well thank you Graham for being with us.
1: Thanks, Maria. It was awesome to talk to you. In the